Welcome to episode 63 of On Air, the Ohio Hockey Digest podcast. The Ohio Hockey Digest is the foremost location for hockey in Ohio, covering every level played from youth and high school to juniors, college, and pro. Articles written to keep the hockey community up to date on all the happenings with hockey in Ohio. My name is Tim Sullivan. I'm joined by Jason Lewandowski, Scott Harrington, and producer Dan Humphrey is finally in the house. With On Air, we are bringing you fresh content and adding voices, names, and faces to interesting people making the Ohio hockey community better. This episode of the Ohio Hockey Digest On Air podcast is brought to you by Athletic Performance Insight. APIs, easy to use, affordable technology, designed specifically for amateur hockey, provides every team the opportunity to benefit from video and analytics. Teams use API app to track events in real time. Event data is used to generate reports and simplify video review. Athletic Performance Insight, amateur hockey, elite technology, professional results. Go to athleticperformanceinsight.com today to learn more about this tool and view a demo video. Our discussion last week with Zach Nowak on episode 62 was a great one. Zach converted from a forward to a goalie as a senior at Lake Catholic High School here in Cleveland and ended up as the team MVP at Kent State University five years later. Now, after six seasons coaching and recruiting at Kent, he's assumed the position of head coach of the Division One ACHA team. What was a, a great talk with Zach uh, last week, and I, I think what, what's kind of funny is, <laughs> you know, you, you talk to people that play the game, and most people don't like the block shots who've been playing forward for a long time. <laughs> most people definitely don't like to stand in net and have people shoot things at them. And he did it as a senior, and not only did, it, did he do it, but then he excelled at it. So I take a guy like that who says, I love this game, I want to learn new positions, I enjoy this new position, and then put him in a realm to where he has to uh, recruit and scout at a collegiate level. And he's just kind of uh, jumped with it, catapulted with it, and climbed the ladder of college hockey when it comes to ACHA. I had, I kind of, it reminded me of the conversation we had with Nate Lehman, who, who started playing hockey, period, kind of late, and then ended up going on to a coaching career uh, to switch to goalie that late in the game. I don't know if you guys ever tried playing goalie in practice or anything like that. I remember doing that in youth hockey. Like Hell no. Something. Youth. And Street I, hockey. I always thought it looked easy, you know, and I put the pads on and couldn't stop anything. Just but, the footwork, but it's, cra- it, it's so. crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy because not to, but but I, I would never ever, 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 stand in net when I was young or even now. But I played catcher when I was in, played baseball. I would block a shot with no problem, but I could never stand in on a curveball when I played baseball. Oh, I couldn't hit a curve. No, <laughs> I couldn't hit a fastball. Uh, anything getting thrown at me or shot at me, I'm out. Yeah, so I did. I played goalie a little bit in a. Pra- I remember in practice, and nothing hit me, so it wasn't a big deal. My old man used to yell at me, man, playing baseball. He'd be like, "Hey, twinkle toes, stop <laughs> moving your feet." I'm like, "I ain't standing in front of that curveball, no way." <laughs> eat it, eat it. But I, yeah, you got to wear it. Wear yeah, it. Wear yeah. it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's wear it. Oh, I didn't know you were done. I'm sorry. I'm done. Sorry. Um, I thought one of the things that was interesting is you know you find like a Nate Lehman, and there's there's a lot of parallels to an extent, obviously, with uh, Zach and, and Nate Lehman. And one of the things I found fascinating was, you know, if, if he really re-fell in love with the game, so to speak, when he stepped in net. And and he took that and sought the tutelage and, and mentorship of a guy like Bill Sweetie, who's a, a just a phenomenal human being. And he, he 
does the job of pointing Zach in different directions, and he goes and eats it all up because he wants to improve. And then go ahead and, and start start recruiting for at the collegiate level. And uh, by the way, why don't you start coaching here? And then hey, this opened and we need you to do it. And I mean, he, not only did he do it in a pandemic, but he just did it. Period. And he's not afraid. I mean, he may be scared to hell. It, it you know, in a, in a closed door conversation, he might admit that he's like, holy crap, what am I into? But he jumps in both feet and he's figuring it out as he goes, taking every resource available. And I don't want to say exploiting because that sounds bad, but but utilizing every avenue possible to improve himself with which to come back and improve his programs. I thought that was awesome. And 70-something kids trying out. So that's great, tough decisions like you were saying, Sully, but good decisions to have to make to have too many kids and trying to trim down the yeah, roster it, to fill it, up two rosters. It's the, it's the worst week in a coach's life for sure. Um, but to be able to have those kids come out and be able to choose from those kids, it's it's a good problem. Um, it's a tough week, but I, I think what what he what he said, which I th- I found was kind of, um, I don't know, it was it was just good to hear that those kids that played on the Division three team last year did the right things to make the Division one team this year, and it wasn't unseen. Your actions, your hard work. Do not go unseen at any level. Keep going. It doesn't. And, and that's, that's you know, he, he spoke of that. You know, he could have probably, and, and I don't want to speak for Coach, but he probably could have chosen two or three other guys that played at a higher level uh, coming into the program, but yet didn't, didn't show that work ethic. ethic. And uh, so I appreciate that. And I think every coach has that in them. Every coach has it is, who's going to work harder than the next kid? And if you're going to work harder than someone with more talent, hard work will easily outweigh talent any day of the week, right? So, I mean, listen, we talked to Jody Shelley. Jody Shelley talked about, uh, when, actually, he didn't talk about it. Uh, Dan Watson talked about it to me off air. He said Jody Shelley was the hardest working guy when he was at uh, camp, when they played in, in the minors together. And look what he ended up having an NHL career. You know, so you know, there, we joke around, or, or seriously joke around, I guess. Of uh, it's okay to be okay. It's okay for things to be okay. <laughs> However, that's a mental standpoint. Is it, Jay? It, no, it is. It's I okay. know it is. It's but, okay for but, things to be okay. When you go off the bat, shit, crazy end. It's okay for things to be okay when you're searching for problems. Searching for problems. If you want to excel in anything, it's not okay to just be okay. That's mediocrity. Right, and and but but you just you you, you made a great point right there. When you don't search for solutions and you don't work hard to get yourself out of that mediocrity, you're going to be in the same spot. You're going to be in the same spot. You're searching for problems. And then what are you going to do then? Point the finger or look in the mirror? No, you point the finger. That's what people do. You point the finger. (laughs) Going down. (laughs) One of my favorite uh, um, cartoons of all time, Droopy Dog. Going down. Hello, Dundum. Oh, <laughs> you really go gazoo on me there. I like that. <laughs> it's okay. Well, this hey, week you guys are doing a good job here. It's okay. The power will probably go out. <laughs> Thanks, Eeyore. <laughs> Remember that Saturday Night Live skit, Debbie Downer? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that was the best. They couldn't even get through that one. That was great. <laughs> was it Horatio Sands stuffed an entire uh, pancake in his mouth to try not to laugh? <laughs> oh man, yeah. Jimmy Fallon was—he he was having trouble. He was crying. Um, it was a great conversation last week with Zach. Uh, this week, uh, excited for our upcoming conversation. Um, 
obviously we do uh, air our show here from St. Edwards High School. Uh, they have this beautiful podcast room that we uh, uh, sit in. Uh, Danny only joins us every once in a while, so it's, I'm glad to see that he's here. Schedule permitting. Yeah, schedule permitting. Uh, but we have a St. Ed's alum, a Cleveland native, who played uh, NCAA Division One, who played in the IHL, the AHL, who played in the NHL, uh, and did some coaching here in Cleveland as well. We're going to talk with uh, Cleveland owns, uh, Cleveland's own Brett Harkins uh, tonight in the show. But before we get to uh, Brett... Live in studio. Too. Live in studio, sure. First yeah. guest ever live. live in studio. So we look forward to that. Uh, but before we get with, uh, with Brett, uh, who's uh, here staring at us, uh, let's see what's going on with the guys. Well, Dan... Hey, new guy. How you doing? Hey. I, I saw your name tag. Hello, my name is... Good to see you again, so, buddy. So, Dan, what's okay? the place look like to you? To find the place okay? I found it all right. Thanks, Oh, Scott. did you? <laughs> Thanks. Did you have to map quest it again? I did. Oh, good. Okay. He did. got his trip ticket out. <laughs> save, save He's the too damn young to even know what the hell the trip ticket was. Save the receipt from the uh, turnpike so I can get reimbursed for it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to want to talk to receivables on that one, and he's not here tonight. So, Dan, what's going on? Uh, nothing. Work is an absolute uh, disaster. Dan, are you regretting this uh, promotion you took? No, I, I enjoy the promotion. Um, you enjoy the, the paycheck. I enjoy the paycheck. <laughs> it's That's not, that was not what the question was. Just. There's a long pause here. <laughs> COVID is really putting a damper on everything. Oh, you're just figuring this out now? No, 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 no. <laughs> but you would think after you know almost two years of it, people would kind of have somewhat of <laughs> what it figured out, and uh, we don't, so. It's just sometimes put you gotta take the bull go, by the horns, Danny, and just I, take charge. I know. And Sully, you you would understand this coming from administration. I come into work every morning with my list of say ten things I want to get accomplished. Today I probably got negative four. Right. Accomplished. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's it's always funny when my Monday uh, list of things to do uh, is still there on Wednesday. Yes. But there's many things added. I swear this is no lie. I did my week today of things that need to get done on my administrative side and I always leave extra spots and I always fill in but I never cross off. I think I'm the worst does it ever, administrator in in the school. Does it ever go up the side too? Like you got your list, your lines and then next thing you know you're you're turning the paper sideways and adding I stuff. actually I don't do that that I I swear to you I put uh post-it notes on my computer and sometimes it looks like my computer is wallpapered. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes, that's where I'm at. So how's everything else, Danny? Doing all right? It's I'm good. good. To, it's good to see you. I'm good. Um, made a new batch of pickles yesterday. Uh, I was going to say, we haven't talked about your garden in a long time. Um, it's about that time to where we're kind of winding down. We are. We should be winding down, but for some reason, we're currently winding up. Well, because it's been 85 degrees and sunny so for the last week and a half. I was getting ready this weekend to... Because I'm going to move the garden so it gets a little bit more sun. Oh, boy. How's that going to go? Um, it's okay. I mean, I already cut down the tree where I'm putting it, so... <laughs> Did you check with the logistics department on that one before you... Cut the tree um, down? I did multiple times. So we had a nice dogwood. It would flower beautifully in the spring. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I wasn't allowed to cut it down. Um, but about a week ago, the the berries oh, yeah. and the leaves started falling from it. And they were all over the deck, and she lost her mind. Rough day. Rough day at work for her. And <laughs> she just said, I, I don't want this tree anymore. And I just, right there uh, right then and there, grabbed a chainsaw. That, that, poor, that, that poor tree was just flowering. All of a sudden, yeah. it was like... Oh no, why is it getting so windy? What's coming through? 
Is it a hurricane that's coming through? <laughs> oh, the flags were up. It was the red flags were on the deck. <laughs> Don't go in the yard. So I was gonna get ready to move them, and then I go to look, and I got like ten more cucumbers coming in. So, yeah. so what? What batch? What was the uh, brine uh, for the pickles this time? I went with the apple cider vinegar, mm-hmm. salt, sugar, some water, um, mustard seed, ground pepper. And then I mix in a little horseradish. Do you ever do like real spicy? I know your mother-in-law does mm-hmm. love, your mother-in-law does some really, really good spicy ones. Yeah. She puts, uh, what does she go with? She's done everything from jalapeno, habanero. One time she dabbled with a piece of ghost in, and they let it steep in the vodka for a while, pours it back in. Mm. And uh, oh my God. You throw that on a, maybe a Sunday Bloody Mary. <laughs> Good night, Jim Kite. I mean, it's phenomenal. <laughs> it is phenomenal. But I'll tell you what, if you have a raspy voice going into that, oh, it's going to make it 100 times worse. You're going to sound like you're Barry White. Your voice gets so deep, but it tastes so good. I'm a fan of spicy things anyway. So so leading into you, it's, how's the week been? Yeah, week's been okay, you know. Uh, let's see. I went to the social event uh, last weekend that is uh, my son's flag football. And that was a good time. Um, I, I, I've always understood in an ice rink why you see certain people standing and, and watching from where they do. And they're usually well away from everyone. I, I know we spoke with guests on our show that say they stand near the Zamboni door. I sat in the end zone this week because it was... In legit the end zone? Well, I, just outside the end zone. Okay. Not like they're going to be running in there and spiking the ball and doing the photo op and all that. But Doing the icky shuffle? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. So, anyways, I sat away this week and just kind of watched because I like the people watch. It's entertaining. It's a gong show. It's first grade. What are we talking about? I mean, I'm not kidding you. The 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 uh, site director at this location and the opposing coach, the visiting coach, got into it at midfield. Phenomenal. I literally sat there. I, I didn't video it because I didn't grow up in that age. What is there to argue about? I don't know. At first grade I football. think it was substitutions. Uh, and that was it then. So the game goes on, and we're getting close to the end. We're getting close. It's a tie. Actually, did they lose? No, they t- they, they t- the opposing team had tied it up. So next thing you know, the home team's running the ball, and beautiful tackle, beautiful tackle, head up, drive with the shoulder, drop the kid, right? And the home coach stands up because he's on one knee watching this play. He's a taller guy. He stands up. He looks across the field and he goes, is that how we're going to do it? Is that how we're going to do it? There's no tackling in this league. And I'm on the sidelines going, holy God, this is abs- This is the best Saturday I've had watching these games all year. This is phenomenal. But anyway, no, that was about it. You know, just running with the kids and uh, enjoying the nice weather. Went uh, to a nice little party at a friend's house uh, Saturday night. Swam in the pool. Actually, I swam in the hot tub, if you will. Uh, the kids were in the pool nonstop. Oh, my, my son... I decided to do his best Daryl Dawkins, for uh, those that don't know who Daryl, Chocolate Thunder. Uh, he used to dunk the basketball and sometimes bring the rim down. Or for the millennials, Shaquille O'Neal has done that yep. before. So they had a, a hoop on the side of the pool, and my son decided he was going to pretend he was slam dunking the ball, and he grabbed the rim. <laughs> and he took the whole thing into the pool. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm having conversation, and I go, oh, no. And so I run around the pool, and I'm looking down in there. Now, this happened quickly, like very quickly. So I'm going to slow it down. 
I'm looking and I'm seeing him swim under the hoop that's on top of him, and he's coming out. So for those that say, why didn't you just immediately jump in? I didn't need to. So he's coming up. His eyes are closed and his arms are extended. So I pull him up out of the pool. I'm like, that was the best dunk I've ever seen. You brought the house down. He didn't like that. He was uh, uh, scared, if you will, that the whole apparatus came down. So I'm talking to my buddy, and he says, yeah, man, that was probably the, one of the best dunks I've ever seen. I probably should have filled it with water to counterweight that. I go, <laughs> he, he weighs 36 pounds, man. How did you know he's going to bring the thing down? So that was my week. Scott? Uh, well, we had the big fantasy draft on Saturday. Ooh. So that's the 26th annual or 27th annual, whatever it is. Did you guys do it somewhere special this year? No, nah, I was all remote. Okay. Yeah, But uh, we did pretty well. I got aspirations this year, so that's exciting. But I spent most of the weekend. Uh, Block shots still there? No, no, no. No, we're still using plus minus. Plus minus. I was going to ask okay. that. Plus yeah, minus. Okay. Who, who do, are, that, that's are, what I. That's what are I. Are you going to write? Are you going to write a preview for? Do you write a preview for the league? No. I used to come up with good stories. I used to do that. I, I don't know. The other guy doesn't. Oh, the yeah. plus minus guy who does yeah. it still. Yeah. He's got tons of time. Yeah, uh, I've retired from that. <laughs> but hopefully, uh, we got a deep run in this this year. But I spent most of the weekend just down a rabbit hole on YouTube watching Norm McDonald stuff. I was absolutely crushed that uh, Norm yeah. McDonald passed away. He's one of my all-time favorites. Love yeah. that guy. Yeah. I just listened to something on Stern this morning. Do you, do you listen to Stern? Uh, not much, not a lot sometimes. He was telling a story about how he uh, – talking about Norm and how Norm came on his show and he said something that got him in trouble from his publicist on the show. And then from the Stern show, he goes to The View and he tries to – like get himself out of it, but gets himself Makes in worse, worse trouble. <laughs> Makes it worse. Yeah. yeah. But he just uh, there was a couple he, terms that he used that I'm not gonna I'm yeah, not gonna use on our yeah, podcast. Yeah. But yeah, and I have a couple of my favorites that I can't even tell on here. But uh, yeah, he he didn't care about what anything. If, for those of you who don't know, he got fired for telling repeated O.J. Simpson <laughs> yeah. jokes after the president of NBC was friends with O.J. Simpson, told him, stop doing it. He kept doing it. And he just kept doing He'd it. Go on he had a, he had a strong up. moral compass, and uh, so he was just going to keep doing it until they fired him, which they did. He, he, he was on what, what the nightly news or whatever they call it on SNL. Yeah, weekend, the, update. Weekend, weekend, weekend update. and he just kept, you're right, he just kept Every doing it. He, talk, he talked about it, and then the next thing he goes, and, and Pope John Paul wrote a, <laughs> wrote a book, and we have a copy of it. It's entitled, O.J. Definitely Did It. <laughs> yeah. And he just kept going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's it was kind of shocking. I mean, obviously, I don't think the the, the public knew that he was sick. Well, they kept, he kept yeah. it secret for uh, nine years. Yeah. Um, Actually, Anthony Anthony Jeselnik, if I who cares, he's never listened to this, so who gives a shit. Um, he came on. He said, I, "What had he say? Uh, Norm Norm or keeping keeping cancer secret for nine years was such a Norm McDonald shit to do." Yeah. That was just him. It was you know, I, personal life was personal life. I started thinking about that, and if you're a comedian, and people know you're sick, I mean, it probably would affect how people were, you know, responding responding to, you. to yeah. your your work. Yeah. So I get it, I guess. But he said uh, Bob Saget was like his best friend. He said he talked to him a week prior for half an hour. Didn't mention him. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Unreal. That was sad to hear that. So you went down. YouTube is. Uh, a rabbit hole, man. You can get yourself deep in yeah. in that, and you go from the rabbit hole to the wormhole, man. You just keep going. Yeah, 
There's a lot of holes you go in there, man. Next thing you know, you're on the black web, the dark web. Is yeah, the dark, dark web. web. <laughs> yeah, my, my weekend and week was just very hectic with sports uh, for my daughters and um, just work stuff. And I had five. My one daughter, my youngest daughter, had two AU basketball games and three uh, volleyball games yesterday. I left the house at 9.15 and got home at 8 o'clock. And, and, and it's funny because I curse those people that do it, but yet I do it. Mm-hmm. So actually I'm cursing myself, and that's like the, the, the hardest thing. The hardest person to curse is yourself. And I, I laid on the couch last night, and I'm like, I'm, I'm an idiot. Like, I'm an, I'm an idiot. You know, these, no one else is asshole. I'm an asshole here for doing this. So <laughs> it is what it is, though. So, but we get back at another week. Uh, uh, high school football's full swing. Um, I, I was... Uh, I was Absolutely loving Saturday night, Penn State whiteout. Oh, it's phenomenal! I just again I, at this point I can take my my love for certain college football teams or college teams, throw them away. I just love seeing people there. I mean, you got to see the Florida State uh, horse run out and they put the big sword or uh, arrow down. It was lit on fire. I mean, I know it's the first time that they're zero and three in a long time, but you still have it, right? Right. It's it's it's. I you almost feel alive again. Was uh, was Oklahoma at home? Do you Oklahoma. Know? The Sooners. The Sooners played Nebraska. Was oh, no, was it Nebraska? I don't, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was it was it Nebraska. In, in Nebraska, I think it was in no- Norman. Okay. Did they come running out with the cart again? Remember when that cart yes. went flipping? We were watching that live. Yeah. I don't remember where we were, but we were watching it live. We were. We were I think we were on a, a hockey trip somewhere. Yes. And the cart. Did you ever see this, Scott? So oh you, they, you know, they have the carriage, the covered wagon. Like the covered, the covered wagon, wagon, covered wagon yeah. comes out, and the cheerleaders are on it. Cheerleaders are on it, and they're doing this and that, whatever. And they make the loop, and the thing goes whoop. Oh, and they, I mean, these they, they girls. cut it so tight, and that thing high sides. It just goes over. And when they slowed it down, the poor cheerleader, like the the the, the guy cheerleader, like jumped off, right? But the girl cheerleader, she went down down with the ship. Yeah, I mean, and oh, yeah, she was holding on. They had to, didn't they have to call the uh, the uh, maintenance crew the, to re- the grounds the, the grounds crew because it took such a divot out of the field. It was insane. Oh. I think producer Dan's going to pull it up here. We got to do the where are they now? Oh, is this it? All right, good. All right here goes here goes ready. Good shape. Ah, oh, it's a tight corner. Oh, hey, she rolled though. Good for her. And the horses just keep going. Yeah. Hey Scott, can here we put this on the website? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh here, here, you see him roll? You see him roll? That was the announcer. That was fantastic. We got to do a where are they now and call them. Sports promotion's gone bad. Yeah. One more. One more, one more look at it. Here they come. Man, they pulled those horses too tight. Yeah, boy. Mike Mudd, who was the uh, general manager of the Lumberjacks, told me he was working in Kentucky, Louisville, I think. And uh, they did a promotion. They're doing a Chick-fil-A promotion. So they brought a cow out on the ice. You know, the mascot's the cow. Brought it out on the ice with, a like, a banner on it. And uh, it slips, goes down, breaks a leg or two, and uh, they couldn't get it off the ice. They had to lasso it with the and pull it off the ice with the Zamboni. Oh, jeez. So there's a long delay and all that. They finally get the game started back up. They drop the puck, and you hear, Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, echoes through the arena. Yeah. They put the cow down. Oh, my God. <laughs> they got so many people. Kids are crying. They're getting letters from PETA and all this. Oh, my gosh. But the best part of the whole story was he's like, we took every precaution. He goes, we put double-sided tape on his paws. 
I said on his what? <laughs> oh, oh my God! Pause. I've heard of Star Wars night. Yeah, I've heard of euphemization <laughs> night. Yeah, jeez, oh man! Remind, remind me uh, about the grizzly bear story some other time. I'll what was the about. one that was it? Bakersfield Bakersfield Condors, and they had a condor on the ice, <laughs> and the handler, the like handler, however you say it, he lost it. Like he he couldn't get the bird back, and then he <laughs> fell. Like he was at sunrise oh, waiting for the condor to land on him or whatever it was, and then the the the, the condor like jumps off his arm. Goes to the bench, jumps on the bench. The players are trying to get out of the way. The, the handler is walking over to try to get the bird, and and the handler falls. Oh my! I think they call them falconeers, don't they? I, yeah, maybe. I, I could be wrong. Like someone who handles birds, like of birds of prey. Birds. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I mean. People. What official? <laughs> <laughs> it's an official timeout. Oh, yeah. tune, tune in next week. It'll be a cliffhanger. Tune in next week for the story about me getting in an elevator with a grizzly bear. Well, if that's not a teaser, I don't know what is. But let's see what's in the news of the Ohio Hockey Digest. Ohio University announced Lionel Marin as the head coach of the ACHA Division I club for the 2021 season. Marin takes over for Cole, Cole Bell and is the 15th head coach in program history. He spent the 2020-2021 season as a graduate assistant with OU while working towards a degree in coaching education. Marin played NCAA Division III hockey for Curry College, serving as the team captain during his senior year and leading the team in scoring. He joined the Bobcats after spending a year in the Southern Professional Hockey League with the Knoxville Ice Bears. Get ready for a road trip. The T-Show is back. The Tri-States Collegiate Hockey League returned to the ice last week with mostly non-conference games, but the Miami Redhawks picked up a 10-0 win over Xavier in the league opener on September 10th. Other highlights in the early going included Cincinnati posting a win and a tie in a two-game series against Bowling Green, Dayton topping Akron 5-3, and Ohio University's Division II team toppling, toppling West Virginia 13-4. The Columbus Mavericks welcomed the Cincinnati Junior Cyclones to the Great Lakes Division of the United States Premier Hockey League with 4-2 and 5-1 wins over their newest division rivals at Chiller North last weekend. Ethan Bashara scored a pair of goals on Friday, then figured in four of five Columbus goals Saturday, finding the net once again and picking up three assists. Columbus Blue Jackets rookie forward Igor Chinnikov is turning heads in his North American debut at the NHL Prospect Tournament in Traverse City, Michigan. Chinnikoff, the controversial first-round pick by Columbus in a 2020 NHL entry draft, scored six times in three games, including a hat-trick and a 6-3 win over the host Detroit Red Wings to close out a perfect 3-0 run by the Blue Jackets' rookies. They actually played again today and won. I didn't realize they had another game today, but I don't think he played. But that's the guy that... Uh, when the blue when uh, no noob <laughs> yeah Yarmo Kekalanian went up to the podium and and uh, announced oh, yeah. Igor yeah, Chinnikov yeah. everybody was looking through their notes <laughs> who is this guy apparently he knew something that was fantastic you pronounced that Russian name perfectly yeah I had a few beers in me <laughs> Igor Igor Chinnikov I don't know you yeah. but I will I don't know who you are but I, I will that's what they said on giraffe night for him yeah Igor Chinnikov uh, you drink the vodka oh vodka oh. the second period of this episode of Ohio Hockey Digest on air podcast is brought to you 
by the Ohio Hockey Project, Northeast Ohio's leader in player development and advancement. Take your training to the next level this offseason with the Ohio Hockey Project. Visit www.ohiohockeyproject.com to learn about fall drop-in sessions currently taking place at four locations across the region. This week, live in studio, we sit with Brett Harkins. Brett's playing career took him through some of the most prestigious programs in the state, from St. Edwards High School to Bowling Green State University. He also played professionally with the Cleveland Lumberjacks, Columbus Blue Jackets. Now he scouts the college game for the Boston Brewers, the NHL. Please welcome on air, Brett Harkins. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, hey, this is, I think, the first time we've had a, uh, a guest in studio, huh? You're right. Fir- yeah. First time we've ever been live with anybody. Right. Other than a Zoom call. Unbelievable. We, we normally do these on Zoom, so this is kind of crazy. Gotcha. Um, well, thanks for joining us uh, here at your alma mater. Uh, we did a little walkthrough as uh, as our we made our way up to the podcast room. So but let's get started talking about you growing up and growing up in hockey in Cleveland in the 70s and 80s and the Harkins family tree. Uh, you had two uh, brothers who played the game at a high level like you did. Uh, you and Todd made it to the NHL, and all three of you, including Donnie, have been very involved in the game after you hung it up. What was it like growing up in that house with, with that uh, amount of talent? Well, it was tough growing up. Obviously, I was the youngest of the three boys, so I was always the goalie or, <laughs> or whatever it would be that would take a beating from the other two. But it was, uh, you know, my dad played football at Ohio State. He didn't have an ounce of hockey skill in his bloodlines, but he definitely had a good coach and tough coach in Woody Hayes, and I think we were kind of brought up you know, to win at all costs. And I think that's kind of what helped us to get all three of us to kind of get to where we ended up getting to in the hockey world for sure. So talk about your uh, growing up and, and the teams. What teams did you play on and who were some of your childhood teammates, coaches, and who were some of the guys that you looked up to that you wanted to be when you guys were playing in the backyard? Uh, for me, obviously growing up, uh, I was more of a Gretzky fan than a Lemieux fan. But, I, you, know, I, you know, I remember laying on my family room floor in the 1980 when you know when they won that olympic gold you know way back in the day with my brothers watching that you know grow up growing up watching that usa team and you know to kind of follow along and play for the team usa and it's just been kind of like a dream come true for for obviously for all of us so what were some of the teams that you played for growing up here in cleveland Cause I, the landscape has changed so much for our listeners um, can you just kind of talk to our listeners, listeners a little bit about the landscape that it was like when you were growing up here in Cleveland? So we grew up, we were introduced to hockey from uh, the Paul Schmier, who this Paul Schmier played for the Crusaders back in the day. And they had, they actually lived right across the street from us in North Olmsted. So there was a used hockey equipment sale at North Olmsted Rink. And uh, like I said, my dad had no ounce of hockey skill in his bloodlines at all. But with those, with the Schmier boys, all three of them being the same age as, as us three, we kind of got dragged over to this used equipment sale because they were hockey players and so it kind of all started from street hockey and me being the youngest I think I started playing when I was three um, from the used equipment sale and then I grew up playing in the North Olmsted youth program I believe obviously for the legend Mr. Bob Whitten you know I owe a lot of my where my career ended up because of him obviously a St. Ed's guy for sure um, and then after that was the, well now it's the Cleveland Barons but it was the Americans and I remember going up to Detroit and just getting smoked up. We were playing teams up there like the Michigan Dynamo that had Mike Madonna, Eddie Olchuk, these guys that, you know, obviously these are household names if you followed hockey back in the day. And we used to go up there and just get smoked like 12-1, 12-2. And it was miserable, but, you know, obviously it turned out to be a good thing for, obviously, for my brother and I because I always kind of played up with Todd, uh, played up a, an age group to play with Todd just to make it easier for my mom and dad. 
And then the one year I did do the whole commute thing, I did go up and play, I think it was Peewee year, I went and played for a Toledo team called Toledo Welders Needs. Um, I commuted and went up there for practice a couple times a week psycho hockey parents that my mom and dad were <laughs> but they did all that stuff for obviously for a reason and, and I went and played on a really good hockey team with some really good players and ended up playing Teddy Kramer played at Michigan Jimmy White played at Colgate I don't know if there's any other guys that might have played some college hockey but none of them played pro on that team besides myself um, and then right into the Americans obviously my freshman year when I went to school here I did not play because the team was pretty good obviously that year was was would have been I think 84-85 and uh I would have probably not played, so I played at the Americans that year, and I did end up playing the two years at St. Ed's. Now, did your dad uh, have designs on you all being football players when you were young, before you got diverted into the, into Def- the hockey world? Definitely. We were just telling stories, because Todd was actually just in town, and we were telling stories about how he had to have a black stripe on his helmet playing peewee football, but my dad would have him like in the sauna with the sweatsuit on, <laughs> and riding the bike so he could run the football. Because my dad would win at all costs, so he was always making sure Todd could run the ball and didn't have the black stripe on his helmet playing peewee football in North Ridgeville. Because there was weight weight limits, exactly. right? Exactly. Weight limits, you couldn't run the ball if you were too big, and my dad was like, we well, need Todd as a fullback. And I, was a, <laughs> and I was the halfback, so I was good with that. He could block for me. It was perfect. And then Todd actually did play football here. He played football for a couple of years here when he was here at school at St. Ed's. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, you also have two nephews who have been uh, pretty successful players. Jansen is just getting going in his NHL career with Winnipeg. And uh, Tyler uh, started here at St. Ed's and Ohio University. Serious question, though. Is it good genes or are the training methods and tips passed on from one generation to the next? I think it's definitely is good genes for sure. I, I can tell you that I the only time I've ever felt bad that I didn't get my son involved in hockey was last year when I was sitting at Nationwide Arena watching Jansen play hockey. It's the only time I've ever felt like maybe I should have pushed him like those two did. Donnie and Todd, obviously their kids were in skates before they were walking. And I was always, and the, you know, if he wants to play hockey, he can play hockey. If he wants to play golf, he can play golf. I was never going to force him into doing anything. So I never did. And that was the only time I felt like maybe I should have pushed him into playing hockey. So we're here at your alma mater. And in your playing days, what was the OHSAA landscape like if you can remember back that far. I get this question all the time, and I I, I follow the hockey a little bit um, because, obviously, I'm so busy during the hockey season with the Bruins, so it's not like I, I just follow it a little bit on social media. So I feel that the love skill level has diminished, but that being said, the reason that it has diminished is because instead of there being 16 teams that play high school hockey, now there's 50. Yeah. Okay, so... It's, it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing because of the fact that a kid from Westlake can play high school hockey, a kid from Avon Lake can play high school hockey, a kid from out Mentor or wherever it may be can play on their high school hockey team. And I think that's huge for high school kids, for their peers. And, you know, Ohio's more known as a football state, obviously. Right. But, but to have, and you guys would know this better than me, how many high school hockey teams there actually are now in the state of Ohio compared to back when I would have played, which, like I said, maybe there was... 15 and there was probably only two or three that were pretty good you know and it, but it was some good rivalries for sure not that there aren't those rivalries anymore because there still are those rivalries for sure you right know, with us and ignatius and the gilmores they're all you know and those are the top teams and they're always going to be the top teams in st francis down in Toledo. so it's just that there are more kids that can write that letter to ohio state or to wherever they want to go to school say it's a kid that plays at avon lake he's the captain of his high school hockey team he can write that letter when he writes to, to ohio state i captain my high school my high school hockey team and right. i think that is huge 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 for these kids and like I said, maybe the skill level has gone down because of that. It's so spread out, but I feel 
that it's the best for the whole, you know, for the game for sure. So who were who were some of the rivals you guys had during your time here? I would say Cleveland Heights was probably our biggest rival for sure. You know, Ignatius wasn't very good back then. North Olmstead? Um, North Olmstead a little bit, but they were a little bit older. They were more my brother Donnie's okay. eighty four when North Olmstead was pretty good. And uh, but Cleveland Heights was probably our biggest rival. River? River was good. You know, they were good. You know, they had the Willsies. They, yeah. So they were good, you know, and Tim did a good job there. Tim Alexander, I would say, no, Tim, you know, rest uh-huh. in peace, Tim. But he was, you know, he coached that team, and, and they were good. But I still think that Heights was definitely our rival, and I get into that with Andy Baskin all the time. <laughs> When's Andy going to come on the show, Scott? Is he, yeah, get him on is the he show. Still, he's is he still, he he's still he's delaying? He's going to be at the thing Wednesday. We're going to see him Wednesday. So oh, okay. All right. So you, you spoke about uh, the legendary coach, Mr. Bob Wooden, and do you have any good – Bob Wooden stories that you can tell, regardless of for a family show or not. <laughs> now I know we so, all do, and we, no, we can go round a, and round. But go ahead. This is a good one. So we were, we were practicing, must have been must have been doing penalty kill or something, and I, and I had cut in front of the net, and I kicked Todd's skates off from underneath him. So Todd goes down. So he, Todd gets up and basically breaks his stick over my leg in practice. Mr. Wooden lost it, sent him to the locker room, and, and every single pane of glass, Todd the glass going off the ice every single pane of glass mr but mr wooden sent him off the ice for practice so <laughs> <laughs> so you, you decided you leave home 16 to go play juniors in canada who was instrumental in helping you make that decision and and how was that a difficult decision for you to make um i would say the decision was probably harder for my brother todd because we didn't know that that's what we probably needed to do to get a scholarship um for me, it was just kind of following Todd's footsteps. Mr. Whitten was a huge uh, like an advocate, uh, for, advocate for sure. Obviously, he would have wanted me to come back. I would have come back for a senior year. We would have won a state championship for sure. Um, but he was definitely like, Brett, it's time to go. You don't need to stay here. You know, you know what your, your goals are in hockey. And if you want to get a scholarship, you know you can't stay here. So he was an advocate for sure. He knew he wanted what, would have, what was best for the, for the kids. And, he knew that's what was best for me. So when did you know that that's what that's the route you wanted to go? You you wanted to play professional hockey. Well, I don't know that that's what I wanted to do. It was always a dream, as it is any kid growing up playing hockey is a dream. I would have to say, when I started to think that maybe there was a real there was a real chance that it would happen, would probably be when I was in college. So was was the thought of leaving uh, to go play junior was that more f- to go to college to get a, a NCAA scholarship or re- did you ever once think of uh, major A? No, I didn't think I wasn't big and strong enough to go major junior, so that wasn't going to be my style of game for sure. Um, so I knew I wanted to play college hockey, and originally I was going to go to Miami where Todd went, but then things happened there with Davidge and the coaching s- staff there at Miami, so that's why I ended up ended up being between Bowling Green and Michigan State. And uh, uh, when I was a young kid playing for the Americans. My assistant, or my head coach, Dave Feel, was a Bowling Green guy. He took us to a game there when we were really little. So I always kind of had that BG thing in me for sure. Talk, just talk about your you, the time for you to go, as we talked about. Like, and Coach said, it's time for you to go if you want to continue this you know, path that you want. Um, obviously, that was the right time. You know, 55 games, 76 points, you know, that was the right time. You know, we have a lot of young listeners that listen to our show that think it may be the right time. They don't know if it's the right time. It could be the right time. It could not be the right time. What would be your advice to those young uh, men and women and their parents? I've always said dominate at your own level. When you dominate at your own level, then maybe it's time to take a look at going somewhere else. But you have to dominate at that level, whether that's high school hockey, whether that's junior hockey, 
or, or whatever, you know, because there's kids, you know, that talk about leaving the Cleveland area to go play in Detroit or go play in Pittsburgh or whatever it may be, but it doesn't matter where you're at. As long as you're dominating at your level, then it's time to look at what's going to be the next, where you're going to be pushed the most, you know, because obviously when you do make that decision, it's important that you're going to succeed, but you also want to be pressured, you know, to succeed. You know, it's not going to be easy. You know, none of it was easy. That's for sure. For yep. sure, none of it was easy. I mean, leaving home my senior year, was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. I went and lived with the family, and I mean, kids do it all the time now, but it was definitely not an easy decision to move away from your parents and my brothers and all my friends. You know, it was a tough, it was a tough decision to make, but I knew if I wanted to be a hockey player, that's what I had to do. Especially in that time, in 87, 88, no cell phones, no internet. I mean, I don't know how many international phone calls you were allowed to make, you know, because of the cost. So that had to be a tremendously difficult decision. Um, obviously, for and, I, and I'm not saying not for you, but for your brother, who was the first out of the family to do it, and say, all right, well, how's this going to work? Yeah, for sure. It's stuff. It's times have changed for sure. It would be a lot easier now, obviously, oh, yeah. with the right. cell phones and social media, and it's easy. You just pick up a phone or an iPad, and you can talk to all your friends FaceTime like you're not even gone. You know, so it's definitely. But it was a big, you know, it was a, it was a big decision to make, and like I said, we knew what we, well, the family knew what we wanted to do, and it, Todd had done it the year before. He went to Toronto and played in Aurora, and uh, I was at a camp, one of those USA Hockey camps, and the GM or whatever from this Brockville Braves actually was there, and he wanted me to come up there and that's just kind of how it happened I was at one of those U.S. camps whether it was select 15 or 14 or whatever it was so. and I think that's great advice for anyone that's listening to this podcast that you know if, if you have aspirations to move to the next level whatever it may be make sure you're the best at where, where you're at now and that's how you'll know right I think that's great great advice there and kudos to Mr. Witten for not trying to hold on to his star oh, player absolutely absolutely push you up to the next level we had a similar conversation with Mike Rupp who went through the same thing. You talked. To, you said you weren't big and strong. He was big and strong, and he ended up going the major junior route, but actually told us he, if he had to do it all over again, he would have gone to play college hockey. But um, So you do move on um, to Bowling Green. Both your brothers played at Miami, as you said. You end up going to Bowling Green, and you play for Jerry York, who has won more games than any other coach in the history of college hockey, over 1,100 games. Number two on the list is short of 900. It's uh, Parker at BU. So okay. you got the two 2,000 wins between those two guys, yeah. a couple yeah. stops on the tee uh, down from each other. But um, you had the opportunity to play for him for four years. Do you remember any specific piece of advice or coaching that Coach York gave you that helped you take your career to the next level? Well, on a personal note, nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> that was his biggest thing that he ever said, and it's so true. Even to this day, I say it to my kids all the time. <laughs> Nothing good happens after midnight. Everyone listening out there, you young kids, <laughs> remember that one for sure. And you know, and Solid just, it, was, it was more at that point, you're getting life advice more so than a hockey advice. What's he going to teach me? You know, is he going to teach me maybe a little bit about the game? But I'm playing college hockey. I'm playing with Nelson Emerson, Rob Blake, guys that I'm playing with who are NHL stars and end up being NHL stars. So I think the life lessons that I learned from Jerry outweigh any of the hockey stuff that he taught me but the four years that I had with him actually his last year in Bowling Green was my last year at Bowling Green so he left to go to BC right after that and he was I still talked to him like I have when I was coaching for the Barons I had some of my players that were getting recruited for to go play there and I, I was trying to actually help Aiden Spellesley this summer to get uh, maybe get to BC but I actually helped him get to St. Cloud which is even a better spot for him so that's good for that kid for sure um, but like I said, more of the life lessons. If you're not five minutes late, if you're not five minutes early, you're five minutes late. 
and nothing good happens after midnight. Those are two of my favorite things from Jerry York, for sure, for sure, for sure. Lev's taking that down right now. He's writing that note. I don't know what I don't know what he's writing down, but he, all I see is midnight and nothing good. Nothing so. good after midnight. Also, you played with some good uh, future coaches at Bowling Green. Dan Bosma, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, Ty Eigner, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. Todd Reardon, who has not, but uh, and that's a couple okay. others, I think. Stretch. That's okay, that's that's okay. okay with stretch. That's okay. Huh? We don't okay. need him on here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you know, it's been. Uh, it's been a pretty good hockey lineage for sure with the GMs, with McPhee, with uh, Brian McCullough and the guy in Washington. Like you said, Danny, the coaching tree. It's been some guys that have gone and moved in the front office, and now, like, for me, it's been six years for the Bruins. So it's been – there's some guys that definitely end up – and Blakey, you know, Blakey's now GM of, of yep. L.A., and Nelson Elmerson works for Blakey in L.A. So it's definitely been some guys that have learned, like, the front office part. And the, the program almost went away a few years ago. Were you following that closely, or were you still playing in Europe at the time? No, I was following it closely for sure. Um, obviously, Burge, when Burge came in there, I, I think Blakey and Nelson had a lot to do with help saving the program. Um, but Burge also helped turn the program around. You know, it was struggling. They were not very good. And uh, Burge kind of came in there, and I'll tell you what, probably two or three years ago at Christmas time, they were probably the best team in the country. Um, I was there for a game against Ohio State where they beat Ohio State. Like, well, they beat Ohio State like the night before, I think like 9-1 in Columbus. And then it was a great game the next night. It was like a 4-3, I think, game in Bowling Green sold out. The rink arena was sold out. It was great to see it back to uh, back to where it was. And now Burge has moved back to Miami, which kind of that was the big thing everyone was nervous about for sure that it was eventually going to happen because he was a Miami kid. And, uh, you know, and now Ty stepped in and Ty was Burge's assistant. And now Ty's kind of trying to keep the program going for sure and they're and they're they're doing well you know they're I obviously scout them all the time so I see them quite a bit throughout the year and they're doing well for sure what's the what's the best rink to watch a game for you best college rink I would say Minnesota Duluth is probably number one or North Dakota best fans by far as, as much as this I hate to say this is Michigan for sure uh. like Yost <laughs> Yost. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um. <laughs> Yost is is special with you know with their fans. The rink is old, you know, it's old but new, and you know their their student section is, at Michigan is second to none for sure. How for crazy! Sure. That they're going to have four of the top five picks crazy. in this year's draft. It's crazy. That doesn't even include the older guys yeah. who are signed and right. or not signed but drafted. Yeah. Uh, it's just ridiculous. I have them on my schedule the second week of the you season. Think? So. Yeah. Well, now, now, hey, I, I know you're eating healthy now. You're watching your weight. You're doing good things. Who has the best concession stand in all of college hockey? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen me. I've gained a lot of weight, so that's why I'm asking. I would say when I go to the NHL arenas, okay. those are definitely the best for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, I mean, after watching, uh, I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch Penn State football the other night, the whiteout. I mean, the whiteout's always exciting. And this year it seemed more electric. So I can't imagine what it's going to be like at Michigan with those fans that are already electric yeah. and now they're allowed back in right. and it's right. just going to be out of control. My boss's uh, brother-in-law is the offensive coordinator for Penn State, so they were at the 50-yard line watching the game on Saturday. It was out of control. And that's and another nice arena there. Penn yeah. State has an awesome arena too, for yep. sure. So let's talk a little bit about your pro career. Um, early in your pro career, you were drafted by the Islanders. Uh, you did not sign with the Islanders, but your first year pro in uh, Andorotic Detroit uh, farm team, uh, you had an a AHL contract. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, the Islanders wanted to sign me after my sophomore year, year at Bowling Green. 
I mean, I might have weighed 150 pounds. So I'm like, I'm not ready for this. There's no way I'm ready for pro hockey. So I was like, I'll go back. I had an average junior year, good senior year, but at that point they had moved on and, and whatever. So uh, Doug McLean, who I, I kind of owe every NHL game I've ever played to is to this guy. And when he tells the story, he says, and he probably should have played a lot more, but he, it was his fault for that too. But he was assistant GM in Detroit. So ended up signing me to a 25-game tryout contract after I went to the Red Wings training camp up in Traverse City, had a good camp up there, got sent to Adirondack. Uh, and then what ended up happening was they offered me a 25-game tryout contract because I had told myself that I was never going to play in the East Coast League. If that was what it was going to be, I was just going to retire. Had a good first weekend in Adirondack. Doug McLean comes down after the weekend. He was there, offers me a contract for the rest of the year. One, an AHL deal. So, of course, I signed the AHL deal. Good team, really good team. A lot of those guys went on to win the Stanley Cup with the Wings in '96. Um, but I was, you know, I played third line center and, you know, and got my feet wet in pro hockey. And at the end of that year, Detroit wanted to sign me. But uh, Boston, what happened was Doug McLean was going to either be the head coach in Providence or the assistant GM in Boston. So, I said, okay, well, if you're gonna leave, then I'm gonna leave. I'll go to Boston. So I went and signed in Boston. Doug ends up not going there, <laughs> ends up going to Florida. But that was fine, that was fine. I ended up going and playing in Providence. Had a good year in Providence. Played my first NHL game that year because that was the lockout year in 94, 95, whatever that year was, I got called up. Was that at the Boston Garden? Your one game, that was the last year of the Boston Garden, right? I, I'm sure I, I've asked you this question before. But was no, that at the Garden? It was, or was not. It, it was at Nassau County's Coliseum, which was at also the Islanders, which is who drafted me. So, and I don't know if, if you guys are familiar, but the hotel that you stay at is right there, like right across the parking lot from the arena, from the old Nassau County Coliseum. So there was no pregame nap, obviously, because I was so nervous. <laughs> um, so I end up that year. <laughs> I end up that year, obviously, finishing. And then Boston wanted to sign me. Detroit wanted to sign me. And then, but Doug had gone to Florida, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to sign in Florida. End up signing in Florida. So one year in Florida organization, uh, and you played with your brother, right? Yeah, in the minors. Yeah, we played together in Greensboro. How cool was that? That was fun for sure because we'd always played against each other when he was at Miami and I was at Bowling Green. So it was good. We'd, it was the first time that we were actually able to play together since we had played real, when we were younger. So it was fun for sure to play a few games with him. And then back to Boston, 96, 97, 44 games uh, with the Bruins in the NHL. Um, can you just talk us through that? I mean, now here you are, you, you've, you were such a, you made so many different moves uh, and you navigate yourself through that. And now you're kind of on some stable ground. Yeah, it was, so Stevie Casper was our, my coach in Providence two years prior when I signed in Boston. So I, he, it's kind of, as you guys know, in the hockey world, if you find someone that likes you, you kind of got to follow them around. So Cass liked me when I played in Providence, played in all situations for him there. He ends up getting the job in Boston. So that's it was an easy decision for me to go back to Boston that year. I was going to get to play. He knew what kind of player he was getting. Coach is making the decisions, so it was easy for me to go to Boston that year. And we had a good team. I mean, we, I mean, I played with on the line with Sandy Moger. We had a, we played third line, and you know, I was used to playing fourth line. Like even when I played in Florida that year, it was, I mean, I was cashing checks from segment bonuses that you wouldn't even believe. But I wasn't even playing. I was playing beach volleyball. Is what I was doing. <laughs> or I was playing. He's like I was, Maverick, right? Or, or, or I was just playing on the power play. Like there was a couple games. I, I mean, I just played first power play. I'm like this is like the craziest thing ever. This is a lot of fun. But good work if you can I, get it. Right. Yeah. Right. A few shifts a game playing on the first PP with Jovanowski, Niedermeyer, Mellenby. It was a pretty easy gig for sure. And then uh, you know, then I went to Boston and. 
and, and I had a good year there. I liked, you know, OT was a big uh, advocate for me there. Adam Oates, I thought I kind of played a little bit of the same style of game that he played, so he was a fan of mine, and so that was a good thing in Boston. And then after that year, I tried to get a one-way contract because I thought I had a pretty good year. No one would give me a one-way contract, and that's what brought, brought me back here, back home. So was it kind of a catch-22, coming back home to play in Cleveland for the Lumberjacks? But, you know, you get to play in front of your friends and family. However, it's not the level you, you hoped you would be at. Yeah, I mean, it was it was always, I knew that I was always going to be a chance that I'd go back there if I didn't get what I wanted. You know, I was always going to, I could always come back here. And, and Larry Gordon was great to me. Obviously, I came back and signed a three-year contract for a lot of money. And I lived with my buddies in Brooklyn and <laughs> spent a lot of time in the basement and the flats and, and had a good and had a good time for sure. For On sure. the washer and dryer down there in the flats? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that when they had the... Uh, uh, Jaeger luge at the, uh, that was the basement. Sorry, that was the basement. That was the basement. Absolutely, Jaeger luge on the top on floor. The roof. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good times. <laughs> what were some of your favorite memories of of the playing days here in Cleveland? I would say playing with Marty. Obviously, playing with Marty St. Louis. You know, obviously, everyone knows you know what he ended up being like. And, and playing at home. You know, I played a, I had a lot of friends at a lot of games, and and it was fun to play at home for sure. Obviously, it wasn't the NHL, but it was the next best thing. And always kept the NHL, you know, in the back of my mind that I wanted to somehow get back there if I could and you know we heard the rumblings of the Blue Jackets were going to be coming soon and maybe there'd be a chance that I could get another shot at it for sure. Were you were you I don't want to say considered somewhat of a mentor on those teams being that you you navigated a lot of of professional hockey up to that time and I'm not trying to date you or say you're old or anything like that but you had a lot of experience so you get a guy like Marty coming in how instrumental what 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 did, did the organization say? You know, we need you to help some of these guys too, or was that just something that you took upon yourself? Going, look, I see the talent. His talent will help my talent. We can all be successful here. I would say that would more have been what Jock was for. You know, because Jock had been here for a long time. You know, yeah. Jock was a Cleveland legend, is a Cleveland hockey legend. Yes, is the Harkins name big here in, hockey, in Cleveland hockey for sure. But you know, Jock had been a lumberjack and played in the Penguins and won Stanley Cups. So I think that was more of a of a jock thing than for me. I was still, I still had those dreams and aspirations of getting back to the NHL where Jocko kind of knew that this is where he was going to be and, yeah. and he would take that upon himself, you know, to be that mentor, even to me. You know, Jocko was great to me, awesome to me for sure. So, And, you know, if you weren't going to play in the NHL, not a bad, bad, you know, world-class arena. We're getting 14,000, 15,000 people there some weekends. You know, it was a, a pretty good pretty good level of uh of hockey to it be was in. a great level of hockey and it was a great league and you used to, to go to some really good towns like long beach las vegas orlando, <laughs> orlando. orlando. <laughs> <laughs> we had some real good trips that trip to vegas would be vegas it would be salt lake we'd go on salt lake and then we'd go from salt lake to vegas so you'd get to vegas like on the thursday you'd play in vegas on friday if you didn't win the friday game there was no chance you were winning the sunday game Playing guilty. I remember Wilkie <laughs> explaining playing guilty to me because I was like, "Hey, you, you know, you'd think teams wouldn't do well when they go there." It's like, "No, no, no. You, you gotta win. Well, you have to win the Friday game. You gotta win the no Friday chance game. the Sunday afternoon. Right? It's not I wish I would have known this back then. I would have been putting some money on the, on every Sunday afternoon game <laughs> down in Vegas, Vegas. Yeah. For, sure. for sure. And Orlando was popular in San Antonio. Yeah, Orlando, and we had some good rivalries with Orlando too. Big rivalry. Yeah. Although you'd play in Kalamazoo oh. and Cincinnati 14 times worst. a year. But Kalamazoo, the <laughs> worst. Oh. Or Kalamazoo, as Philip DeRuville called it. Um, so after uh, your three years, and I guess and then you played in Houston a year. Yeah. Um, 
And then you mentioned Doug McLean and the whole, you know, finding the guy who likes you and all that. He ends up with the uh, expansion uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. Although you weren't there the first year, were you? It was no, no yeah. that was the year that I was in Houston. But I, okay. I did go to training camp that first year, and it came down. The, the final two cuts were Steve Malte and myself. And I had known Maltz. Maltz and I had played together in Adirondack. So I knew that they were talking about signing him, and so I knew it wasn't going to be, and I knew it was going to end up in Houston. And then after that year in Houston, had a good year, and then my brother Todd had played in Europe, so I was all set. I'm like, all right, let's go. Said to my wife, let's go. We're going to go to Europe. And then Doug calls and is like, you want to give it one more shot? And I'm like, I don't know. i got to talk to my wife and see. The farm team's in Syracuse. That's not the best place <laughs> to play hockey. <laughs> so um, she says, yeah, you might as well give it one shot. If you're not there, I'll be in Cleveland, whatever. It's right up the road. So I end up, you know, that's the that second year of the Blue Jackets existence, which was 02. I ended up at obviously going to camp, making the team, kind of being an up-and-down guy. I was in Syracuse for a bit. And I'll never forget because I tell the story all the time. I'm in Syracuse now. I'm 32 years old at the time, and uh, I'm out in warm-ups. And David Ling, I don't know if you remember Linger. You might remember Linger. David Ling and Billy Tibbetts. Or Billy Tibbetts played for the Penguins, had an ankle monitor on. He was just whatever. <laughs> he was a convict. And just a, just a, just a, Literally, just, yeah, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So Linger and Billy Tibbetts are taking slap shots at each other in a warm-up. <laughs> now, this is 2002. Okay, now, and I played on some tough teams in the A, and... I'm just looking at myself. I'm 32 years old. I'm like, do I really want to keep playing hockey at this level when these guys are taking slap shots at each other in warm-ups? Ogletorp? <laughs> oh, <laughs> my gosh. And there, there's actually, that year, if you Google, there's a, a St. Patrick's Day game between us and Wilkes-Barre where Jason McDonald, it's, it was like the massacre. It was an unbelievable brawl. I was in Syracuse that, that game. I was on the ice for that game when it all happened, and I'm just like, this is time. It's time to go. But I ended up. I had my daughter that year in Columbus. She's 19 now, and uh, finished there. Had a good year in Columbus. Thought maybe there was a chance I'd come back, and then uh, just uh, the lure to go to Europe kind of came. And then I was like, all right, let's go. Well, that's a, you get to a certain point in your career. That's a pretty good deal, right? So you're maybe going to play some games in the NHL. Maybe a lot of guys, you know, probably on the wrong side of the thing. You said you're what 32 years old at that point. Um, and what, what's the allure of playing in Europe for those people who don't know at that stage of your career? Well, at that stage of the career, it's money. It's Europe. Obviously, it's <laughs> Europe. You can travel everywhere. Um, and I ended up going to Sweden, which I I just, I would actually, what happened was I, when they ended up signing me, they, I went over there. They brought me over in the summer to kind of see if it was going to be good for the family. And, and I went to, and we were in North, it was, it was far north. We were in Sheleftia, which a lot of hockey, if you're a hockey fanatic now, you'll see a lot of NHL players are going from Sheleftia. And, and it was a great place to play. The fans were amazing. I, I could not I do not have a one bad thing to say about my whole six years experience in Europe playing hockey for sure. How'd you like all that open ice? Big ice power play. <laughs> perfect. perfect. Love it. But it's a lot of skating. <laughs> it wasn't my in my repertoire, that's for sure. Especially at 34, 35, 36, 37, 38 years old, for sure. It's a lot of ice to cover for sure. Don't get hit you don't get you play half as many games. Don't get hit that much. Half as many games. Don't get hit as much. That's for sure. Tax-free money. Tax-free money, and travel the world. And yet, so what are some of the experiences you had away from the rink, uh, playing in? It was what six years in Sweden and Finland was, mostly. Yeah, it was first year was in uh, Sheleftia, Sweden, and then two years in Helsinki, Finland. And I went back to Sheleftia my fourth year, and then I finished my last two years in Rugla, which is down in Engelholm, which is down by uh, Copenhagen. Um, but. The experiences were, my son was born there in Finland, um, 
So that was awesome for him. Obviously, a great experience for my wife. She loved it. We got to travel. When I was in uh, Helsinki, we would go to Russia f for training camps. So I got to go to Red Square, got to do Moscow, got to do all that. We also went to Lugano, Switzerland, Davos, Switzerland. We went on a family vacation where we didn't tell the kids. We actually went to Paris and went to Euro Disney. Took the train. We went to... We were in Milan, Italy, because I like the shops. We went to Milan, <laughs> and then I had a friend playing in Lugano, Switzerland. So we took the train from Milan, Italy, up to Lugano, Switzerland, and it's got to be the most through Lake Como, has to be the most beautiful train ride in the world. So we got to do that. I mean, just the stuff that the travel that you experienced was unbelievable. Well, sure. I have a, an old family friend. She was actually an exchange student that stayed with us when I was in high school, who. Uh, lives in Helsinki, so she was pretty impressed that I knew Brett Harkins. I was pretty big. But she's from Rauma, so she roots for Luko. Yeah. So this is a funny story. I was coaching this uh, that group of kids that I used to coach with, uh, Sonny Milano and Nandankovic and Magyar and those Cleveland kids. It was, good. it was a good group of kids. And uh, we had a guy out of Florida, Brett Merle, who passed away a few years ago, but he took us to, we went to Moscow for a trip for uh, like the world championships for this 96 birth year. So. I'm like, if we're going to go to Moscow, I'm like, we might as well go to Sweden and Finland on our way and make it like a two-week trip. We can go to Sweden and play some exhibition games. And then there's a booze cruise that goes from Stockholm, <laughs> to, <laughs> Stockholm to Helsinki, and my parents would be perfect for this booze cruise for sure. So then we'll go from this booze cruise from Stockholm to Helsinki, and it's an overnight cruise ship. So we get, now I'd retired and whatever, and so I've been retired for a couple of years. So we're, we get on this cruise ship, and I had messed up my back in Stockholm. And so I'm like, I'm going to get a massage as soon as we get on this boat. Because it's an overnight boat. At least like 9 o'clock, it goes all night. So, And when this is happening, the finals in the SM League in Finland are going on. And IFK, who I played for for two years in Finland, was playing in the finals. And uh, so I'm getting a massage. And my players are banging on the door. They're like, coach, coach, you got to come out here. Now I'm thinking one of my players did something. <laughs> they He's getting a to. massage too. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm thinking, okay. But I'm like, guys, I'll, when I'm done. So get the massage. Now I come out of the getting the massage. And I, they said, coach, you got to come to the bar. You got to come to the bar and see this. So we go to the bar. There is a fan that has my jersey on. And all the, on this cruise. On this cruise. Now there's two of these jerseys in the world. I have one. <laughs> this person has the other. Like the, my parents are telling this guy that the, the, the not my parents, my hockey kids' parents yeah, are telling yeah. that, that I'm on the boat, and this guy's like, "There's no way." And they're like, "Yes, he is. He is." There's like these guys were so happy. They're like, "No way, no way, no way." Sure enough, I roll into the bar. Obviously, didn't pay for a drink the rest of the night, and uh, so it was a pretty cool experience for obviously for my parents and my kids to see all that. And then what happened was. We actually get to Helsinki, and IFK actually won the championship that night. So there was probably six or seven guys that I played with. So I actually went out, went out and party with all those guys once we got to Helsinki. So please please cool. tell me you walked into that bar with just like a towel and a robe on, <laughs> and you just scared the, the players, hell out of that guy. One of the players. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about coaching, so you end your career playing, and then you get into coaching. Um, you coached at the Cleveland Barons. Uh, that we know for sure. Uh, any other places you coached at? No. Nope. Okay. Uh, what is it like coaching youth hockey um, now compared to when you played in the 80s? The biggest thing for me, um, not comparing to me in the 80s, I want to do this other thing first before I go to that, okay. was when you come strictly just from playing, as a player you want to win at all costs. And that was one of the things that I 
kind of kicked myself for in the very beginning of first when I first started coaching was I really wasn't coaching to make the kids better. I was more coaching to win. And it was took me a little while to kind of figure that out. And then when I finally figured it out and stopped bringing kids from all over to take kids spots from Cleveland on my teams, I thought it was more it was more satisfying for me as a coach to get those make those kids better. And I still talk to some of those kids, and, you know, that are Cleveland kids. And so that was a big thing for me was to learn the difference. You know, when you're going from one side to the other, was was you know, it's not winning. You want to make these kids better every day. So well, but, I mean, you can't be faulted for that mentality after spending so many years playing at a high, the highest level and a high level. And that was your, you know, pedigree was to win, you know, so then you did, so then you finally figured that out. Yeah. Um, and, and you said you, you had that 96 birth year uh, with Sonny Milano and Maggie are a couple other really good players. Um, you know, what, what can you tell us about when, you know, I don't want to say when you made that transition, but making that transition and then, and seeing these guys and, and working with these uh, local kids and seeing their progression. It's just, it's great to see the kids, you know, that put in the effort to get better. And that's the most important thing is, is are you better today than you were yesterday? You know, that's the most important thing. And I think kids nowadays, you know, it's the millennials and that they put their cell phones down and put in the work, you know, it can be done. I just think, you know, you have, there's special kids that, that want to be hockey players. And you look at kids, I, heck, I remember coaching against McDavid. You know, when I coached that 96 team, we played against the Marlies when McDavid was on that Marlies team. And you could just tell this kid was special, but he put in the work puts in the work you know, right. every single day. These guys have skating coaches, shooting coaches. I mean, I definitely think you should play other sports, but, you know, kids that make it are the kids that really put the effort in, for sure. So we've talked numerous times on this podcast about cities that have really kind of exploded when it comes to the youth hockey, the junior hockey. Can you talk uh, to us a little bit about the difference where Cleveland and Columbus are today? Uh, Columbus obviously has boomed. Um Obviously, the Blue Jackets have helped that. We talk about cities like St. Louis has done the same thing. You know, what, what, is, what is your take on, on uh, Columbus's hockey compared to Toledo's and Cleveland? Like, they used to be the powerhouse in, in the state. I think, like you, you, you pointed out, that Blue Jackets have a lot to do with, what, you know, what's, with what's happened in Columbus. Because when I first started coaching here in Cleveland, I was able to get those Columbus kids to come play for us because there was no Blue Jackets team. You know, but now, you know, those kids, stay, they can stay in Columbus and play in that Tier 1 league, and so it makes a big difference. You know, you're not... At the end of the day, I mean, this, some people aren't going to be happy with this. It's not, if you could take the whole state of Ohio, we could compete. But with all these little pods of Cleveland, Toledo, the Toledo kids might go to Detroit, might come to Cleveland, and Columbus, I just don't think that there's enough good hockey players. From a depth percent? From a depth percent. There's more players, just like, just like we talked about earlier with the high schools. There's more players for sure. But I just think as far as the high, high-end kids, they're spread out. And so they're playing on different teams. Or even some of the Cleveland kids go to Pittsburgh and play now. You know, which I, for me, coaching at the younger level needs to get better. And, I, and when I was at the Barons, I said I'll coach two teams. I said I'll coach younger kids. They just have to practice. I just think at a younger level, the coaches need to be coaches and not dads. And I think that's where, where Cleveland hockey needs to improve. I just think that as... At, young, at the younger level, and I'm talking Pee Wee sports, you know, you need to have guys. And like I said, I, I tried to do it when I was at the Barons. I said, I'll coach two teams, but they have to practice on the same nights. And I think it would have helped tremendously, but I just don't know that, you know, that it's a, it's a lot of time that people need to devote to it. You know, and I had my own family, so I was with my kids, so I couldn't devote tons and tons of time to it. But I think that it's at the younger levels, the coaching needs to be better. 
And out of outside of geography, what is hindering Ohio from becoming? And let's just take Cleveland. What's hindering an area from becoming stronger than what they are? That's a good question. You know, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I don't know that if because there is enough teams. You know, there's enough youth hockey for sure. There's enough arenas. You know, I just think that maybe. I don't know the numbers. You know, yeah. I don't know the numbers as far as how many there are in Cleveland's Urban Hockey League or whatever. It's, yeah. it's the the numbers are there probably, but the high end talent isn't. You know, I think maybe the last kid to come out of Cleveland would be who Curtis Hall, who yeah. we have was a draft pick of the Bruins, who's you know, and before that would have been what Gettinger probably, Timmy mm-hmm. who played for me, the Barons. Um, so there's kids, but they're coming few and far between. You know, that we're not that hockey, Cleveland's ever been a hockey hotbed. Obviously there was ourselves and Holzinger and Rupper and a few guys, but it's, you know, it's kind of sporadic for sure. So when did you know you wanted to be a coach? Was that always the plan when you left playing to then just jump right in? I took a year off of doing nothing hockey related and then uh, started to get the itch a little bit to kind of, and I, and I had known of that 96 group, you know, you heard about that group and the wild stories. I was like, oh, that could sound like it could be fun road trips on the road with all those parents. So, so let's go on a booze cruise, so everyone, exactly. to Russia. So, exactly. So, here we are. So when when did that coaching? I don't want to say when did that. Yeah, when did that coaching bug turn into scouting? Was it just a matter of wanting to get back at that level? Yeah, I wanted to be back in the NHL for sure. And um, Donnie Sweeney, the GM of the Bruins, was my roommate when I played for Boston. Um, so once again, going back to the buddy, have someone to like share whatever. And so Sweeney's. Sweeney's had known that I wanted to get involved, and uh, he was up for the GM job in Washington when McPhee got fired before McCullen got that job. So he had known that I wanted to get involved, and uh, I tell this story all the time. So I go to see uh, Tory Krug. We go for the July 4th to go for a concert. This is before I even started working for the Bruins. And uh, Sweeney's is a Harvard guy, so it could be an interview. He's like, come over and see me at the rink. So I thought it might have been an interview, and it ended up being an interview. So. Sweeney's had ended up just getting the Bruins GM job when Shirelli got fired. When Peter got fired, they fired a few of the scouts too because they were his guys. And um, they needed a full-time guy. So Sweeney's and I were talking. He's like, well, I know you're coaching. I know you have your business in Cleveland. You just want to do it part-time. And I'm like, yeah, I just want to do it part-time. This was in July. And so play phone tag the whole summer. And uh, like the Wednesday before rookie camp in Buffalo, he calls and says, Harks, I want you to come to Buffalo this weekend for rookie camp. I'm like, Sweeney's, I can't come. I got my little guys up in Detroit. He goes, when's your last game? I said, 10.30 on Sunday. He goes, perfect. We don't start till Sunday night. Come to Buffalo. I'm like, okay, guess I'm going to <laughs> Buffalo. Call my wife. I'm like, I'm going to Buffalo on Sunday. I won't be home until Tuesday. <laughs> so head to Buffalo for that rookie camp. Um, you know, kind of get to meet all the guys there. and Still don't really know what I'm doing there. But some of the guys were good to me. Some guys were like, what are you doing here? Who are you? And so talking to Danny Bowles, and I talked to Danny the next day in Buffalo, and then whatever, sitting there with all the guys, the next week is the USHL Showcase in Pittsburgh. And they're like, oh, I want you to go there. I'm like, okay. So I'll go there, too. So I go there with our amateur scout, and they call me. Keith Gretzky is the director of amateur scouting, calls me, and Gretzky's like, Harks, I want you to come back to Buffalo next Thursday for the top prospect scene. Now my wife's like, okay, <laughs> this is three weeks in a row. You don't know how much money you're making. It's supposed to be part-time, and you've been gone. So what's going on? So uh, finally get a hold of Sweeney's and he's like, Harks, here's the deal. He goes, I got no money for you. <laughs> but he goes, I want you to go see however many games you want. You can go see college hockey. You can go see USHL, which is Youngstown here. You can go see the program in Ann Arbor. 
you can see Windsor, you can see Erie. McDavid was in Erie, so I saw a bunch of games because I when I would go with my team up to Detroit for the all our showcases was in Detroit. I could run over to Ann Arbor, I could run to Michigan State, I could catch PG, and I Sunday Windsor always played Sunday afternoon game. I could catch Windsor on the way home. Get to like the middle of February, Sweeney calls me. He goes, "Harks, no more games." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "I put fifteen thousand dollars in my budget because they paid for my obviously my mileage, my hotels, meal money, blah blah blah." And you reached him. I'm like, "What?" So no more games. I'm like, "All right, perfect." So what happens is the guy that was doing the college scouting ended up becoming a, wanted to get a bigger role in the amateur side. So that job opened up. I played college hockey. I knew all the coaches. Sweeney's so like, "Harks, this is perfect for you." And now I've been doing it for six years. So you only do college? Just college hockey. All undrafted, yep. correct? I do free agents, and I write my reports on all the drafted players. So if on I all. So if I see, like, Minnesota, Michigan, I'm writing on, like, 30 players. If I see... Not just drafted guys in the Boston system? Every team. Every team. For trades. Oh, so, I got you. So I got you. If, if we're making a trade with the Rangers, and they have a Rangers draft pick in Michigan, I write a report on him, so then they can read my reports if, in case they want to throw him in as part of the trade. So how much prep work do you have to do beforehand? Like, I know we spoke off air that you're leaving next week to go to uh, Omaha. Yeah. How much prep work goes into a, a travel week for you? Um, not much right now because of the fact that I know all these guys. I've seen them all, and especially with the year of COVID, most of those guys went back. So it's like watching it all over again that I watched last year. So we know the players. We have our list of players that we want that we're going to chase, and those will be... What I try and do is, I, so I do the Big Ten, the WCHA, and the NCHC. So what I try and do is I try and see each team at least once before Christmas. Which I, which my, and I do my own scheduling, so I'm able to do that. And I will see every single team, some teams more so. And then once we'll have our meetings after Christmas, and then we'll kind of dial it in as to go in, if I have to go see some other team a little bit more second half of the season. That's kind of how we'll do it. And so who do you, you write your report does that go to the general organization, or is that to the head scout? Is that to the GM? How does it's it work? It's a program called RinkNet that basically, once I once I sync it, everyone in the Bruin organization can see it. Not everybody, yeah, but the GM and the director of scouting; those guys can all see it. And I'm always thinking, there's no way they read all these reports. But then Swains will be like, "Hart's talked about this guy, blah blah." blah. I'm like, "Oh, he really does read it." <laughs> <laughs> Do you think scouting is an art or a science? Finding a player. Finding something, and I know you, you, I mean, like you just said, you know most of these players now, but is there ever somebody that comes out of, I don't want to say left field, because there's so much work that goes into actually knowing these players now. Is there ever any anything that's like, I got a diamond in the rough and you guys got to find out about this? Yeah, you, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll find a guy that you really like that someone, other guys might not like. You know, there's, I mean, there's college free agents that have been successful, like, look at Tory Krug. Obviously, there's a big one right there, and we got a little guy there in Providence now. His name's Jack Deshaun from St. Cloud, who plays the same kind of style as Tory. And he could, a lot of people are talking that he could be the next Tory. And I was, he was probably a top three college free agent two years ago. And I was kind of shocked that we were able to get him just because of the fact that we had Tory, we have Grizzly, we have little guys, little defensemen. But obviously, he was looking that we were going to lose one of those guys, or there was expansion, or whether Tory was going to leave, free, do a free agency, free agency, or whatever. So he kind of took a chance on himself and signed with us. And, and I think it's going to end up being a good decision for the kid. He's going to probably end up getting a shot in Boston. When you start zeroing in on kids, you said you know after Christmas or whatever. Do you ever notice, uh, you know, you go to see the kid play more in the second half of the year? Uh, you start seeing scouts maybe from the same team showing up in the building. You think, oh, I wonder if they're on the same guy that I am. We're all we're all going after the same guys. 
that's the thing, you know. At the end of the day, if you're doing your job right, you know, then we're all going after that same probably five guys, you know. And then once it gets to the, towards the end of the season, it's kind of out of our hands, and then it becomes a recruiting tool. And when you've been like us and been good for so long, it's a tough sell. You know, it's a tough sell when there's – we don't burn contracts. We usually don't. I mean, we will if the player's exceptional. We'll burn a contract or burn a year. But there's other teams that might be out of the playoffs, like the Chicago got that kid last year from D.C. because they burned a year. And we, you know, Meaning you'll sign him, he'll play a few games play in the NHL, games, and, that counts as, and that counts as one year off – Closer okay. to free agency Closer for him. Agency. So his agent is saying, you got to burn exactly. off a year. His agent's saying, yeah. we got to do this. But there's kids that get burnt to do that. They end up playing two or three games in the NHL, and then they never get hurt from again. You know, we're, we're, we're more of, we'll sign you, come play in Providence. And, you know, and if you're the best player in Providence, if you're a first-round pick or you're a college free agent, it doesn't matter. You're going to get called up. I mean, the kid that Carson Kuhlman had played for Duluth a few years ago, scored a goal in, what, game six of the Stanley Cup Finals two years ago? You know, and... And that's a good sell for us. You know, we can say, listen, Carson was here two years ago at this, you know, like development camp. So it's a, it's a good thing. How much of it's analytics versus your eye test? So what you're seeing? I think that the guys in Boston turn it into analytics from my eye test. When I write my reports, yep. they kind of anal analyze it and turn it into analytics. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward. At the, an amateur scout is a tough job. It's a tough job. I mean, you're you're four years out what's this kid going to be like in four years and I coached and you guys have coached so you know what your kids change in four years so it's you know you're it's it's a lot different at my level the kid can your player can't you know we have to hit it, it has to be for sure that he's going to play if right. we're going to sign him he's going to play right you know he's going to play so and what's the first thing you look for skating can't skate the way the game's going right now it's just it's you have to be able to skate the rest of it can kind of be taught or worked with but if you can't skate you can't keep up you can't play now well, Brett, thank you for coming in studio to your alma mater. Appreciate it. Uh, and spending some time with us. Really appreciate you giving us an insight on um, your career, your path, your family's career, um, and then uh, uh, your transition into the coaching and scouting aspect of it. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, uh, continue to stay close to the program, if you will. Thanks for having me, guys, for sure. All right, thank you. That's Brett Harkins. Good we, stuff. Thanks, Harkins. We, we normally have a, a parting gift basket, but it's not in the budget this week. Sorry. But it was part, it was part of the $15,000. <laughs> <laughs>
You want to be an El Dente player? No. No. You want to be seasoned. Absolutely. Holy cow. We, so, we took it to a different level. No, right? no, but it's the truth, yeah, right? It's it. the truth. If you don't cook the pie long enough, it doesn't taste good. So why rush a career in hockey? Why rush a career in baseball? Why rush an educational career? Why rush something? You know, this could go hand in hand with people in the business world. You try to climb the ladder too fast, you end up coming back down the rung, right? It is what it is. But I thought that was very profound of what he was talking about. Um, Jay, that seems to be a Bowling Green thing because we heard another Bowling Green guy say that to us years and years ago uh, in their locker room. Yeah, Ty Agner. Right. Ty Agner told us the same thing. And, hell, let's go down the Bowling Green list. Dan Belsman told us the same thing. Ian Moran told us the same thing. And I know Ian's not a, a BG guy. But, you know, you look at all the stuff that he's accomplished in the game of hockey and, and how he's trying to give back to the game of hockey. And I thought it was very profound when he said that early in his coaching career, it was win, 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 win. And the development aspect was he neglected the development aspect until it took him a bit to realize that. And, you know, you, you look at <laughs> it goes along the same lines. Don't leave until you're the best where you're at. Okay, well, you know, you, you got guys that in this day and age, everything is instantaneous. I mean, we sit here all the time and we're on our phone getting information immediately. Well, sometimes it needs to be seasoned. How many times do you get information out of the gate on the interweb and there's false uh, uh, facts in there, if you will? I don't call them facts, but. There's information that isn't, you know, you want to break that story first. You got to be the first to do this, the first to do that. Well, you don't have all the information. So maybe you're in your bubble that is your local area uh, sporting place, and you're, you're really good. And then you take one trip somewhere, and you realize, holy crap, there's a bunch of guys that are really good. I need to do this. You know, Mike Rupp talked about you have to – Sometimes you need to be the man. Sometimes you have to not be the man and learn how to grow in those situations. And I think that Brett doing the self-examination, if you will, of, of his coaching style, coming up with the fact that the win now, the win here, the win immediately wasn't the best avenue. And, and that was, I mean, I've talked to him a million times, and that was probably one of the most profound things he's told me. But it, 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 is, it is something to say about, young men and young women, um, but having someone of an authority kind of work them through that vulnerability Yep. about, hey, you know, sometimes you have to be the man and sometimes you don't need to be the man, but as a person of authority, a parent, a coach, an advisor, it's also their duty to help these young men and women through that vulnerability process. True. We don't have that a lot anymore. We have the parents or the advisor that says, oh, no, this is this is where you're going to be. My son's going to play at Michigan State or my son's going to play there. And your son can't even play at whatever level Right is the third line. But you're going to. Oh, yeah, he's going to play. He has aspirations of playing at Michigan State. Right. Well, I, I will. tell well, you, I, Right. Well, well, I'll tell you this, too. I, I know we talk about this a lot on our show. We're not saying don't chase the dream. Every one of us has chased a dream to some way, shape, or form extent. We're saying there's a different way to go to get to that dream. It's a process. 100%. Trust it. And you have to trust it. Yes. So, yeah, sometimes you need to stay and be the man, and sometimes uh, you've done that, and it's time to leave the nest, and you get a little push by uh, Coach Whitten or whoever to go, you know, it's time. 
and time to find a new challenge too. So he's kind of he covered both ends of it, I think, a little bit there. Absolutely, absolutely. Sometimes uh, you eat the bear. Sometimes the bear eats you. <laughs> huh? Hello, love. <laughs> Well, we thank Brett for coming in and spending some time with us. And, and uh, it was actually nice to show Brett around a little bit of the new building here at St. Ed's. He hasn't been here in a long time, so um, it was nice for him to see some of that. Um, so what a great episode. Check out www.ohiohockeydigest.com for the full lineup of upcoming guests. Cincinnati Cyclones head coach Jason Payne will be our guest next week, following, followed by and Canton native and NCAA Division I player Justin Wells. We're continuing to grow the game as the best we can. This is On Air, the Ohio Hockey Digest podcast.